What's up, Bitcoin Magazine podcast listeners? Welcome back to the show, bro. Let's go. I'm Dave, and that's Graham over there, kind of brooding. Yeah, it's uh, classic Graham over here. Uh, came back and actually brought Dave some pickles. Well, uh, Graham, th- thanks for this jar of pickles. No, I made those, Dave. Those are from my garden. Mr. Green Thumb. <laughs> Thank you. You should try one. I'll, I'll try one after the show. Try one now. So we haven't done news in a while. No, we haven't, which isn't weird at all. No, it's not unusual. Well, okay. What's going on in the Bitcoin universe right now, Dave? Well, Mr. Peterson... Don't say my last name on air. We've talked about this. Well, Mr. Peterson, after the news today, we're talking with Max Webster. And we're going to interview him about a recent study his company has published about Bitcoin adoption in Latin America. That's right, Mr. Hollerith. And he's also a Bitcoin rapper by the name of Cypher Perro, which, of course, translates to Cypher Dog. And we're going to play his tune, We Take Bitcoin, at the end of the episode. So make sure you stick around for that. That comes later. But first, the news. In a sign of privacy preserving and open source solidarity, the Bitcoin payment processor BTC Pay Server has launched a crowdfunding campaign for Tor. BTC Pay told Bitcoin Magazine that it wanted to help raise money for Tor because it appreciates the browser's privacy features and because it noticed that it was previously soliciting donations through BitPay, which it feels do not protect the privacy of contributors as well as its own services could. If you're interested, you can make a donation to Tor through the browser's subdomain through July 29th. In an emerging Bitcoin use case that would certainly not protect your privacy, a city in Canada has become the first to allow Bitcoin-based municipal tax payments. Richmond Hill, a city of 20,000 constituents, will enable the payment option through a partnership with Coinberry Exchange. In September, city staffers will report on its effectiveness and determine whether the payment option could be expanded to more city levies. A representative of Coinberry told Bitcoin Magazine that the group is hopeful the option will expand to other municipalities soon, even Toronto. While Canadians can pay their taxes in BTC, the U.S. government has taken a decidedly different stance on Bitcoin. When President Trump tweeted last week that he is not a fan of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, he said that their value is highly volatile and based on thin air. The president's post ignited an epic Twitter thread, but didn't really accomplish anything. For the most part, Bitcoin Twitter reactions to Trump's stance are snarky and combative. If nothing else, it was a moment that galvanized the community and brought more notoriety to Bitcoin than usual. Plus, the price got pumped. Speaking of things Donald Trump doesn't like, Iran has been a hotbed for Bitcoin mining activity for some time thanks to the subsidized energy offered there and the bevy of U.S. sanctions that hinder the national economy. While news of Iran cracking down on miners has been prevalent, recent local reports suggest that the government will soon officially authorize Bitcoin mining. While it's unclear what a government-sanctioned mining industry would look like in Iran, it would certainly be a major development for the country and the international mining ecosystem overall. Max Webster got his start in crowdsourced local energy projects for schools, churches, and small businesses. Three years later, he was in Mexico City leading growth and adoption for solar energy. This year, he's co-founder of Entiende Bitcoin, a consultancy focused on spreading Bitcoin adoption. We brought Max on the show to talk about a recent study his company's published measuring Bitcoin adoption throughout Latin America. 
Before we get into the study, though, I wanted to ask, how did you get into cryptocurrency? What was your entry point? Yeah. So like a lot of people, you know, I had read about Bitcoin a long time ago. I think I read about it in 2011 for the first time. Uh, I thought it was a really cool idea, but I thought, well, this will never work. I mean, it's interesting, but you know, th there's no chance Bitcoin's actually going to catch on and stick around. I didn't understand the intricacies of the how proof would work or you know, what the blockchain was. Um, so I kind of just thought it was cool, then forgot about it. Fast forward, you know, I moved down to Mexico in 2015 to help uh, start a solar energy company. And while I was living there, uh, I saw that all of my friends, you know, had their savings in pesos. And over the three or four years I was living in Mexico, I saw the peso to uh, dollar conversion rate go from about 13 or 14 pesos to the dollar to about 19 or 20 pesos to the dollar today. And I remember thinking, man, like, you know, your purchasing power, if you're saving in pesos, is just getting eroded uh, very slowly. I started reading more about that and saw that uh, there were obviously countries where that was way worse. And I made some friends from Argentina, from Venezuela. And so I was interested already in, you know, finding a way for people to save uh, in dollars or some other sort of harder currency. Um, ultimately stumbled upon Bitcoin. I was also looking at Ethereum for, you know, the idea of sort of decentralized energy trading related to what we were doing with the solar company. Um, right. Ultimately came back to Bitcoin and said, you know, holy crap, I can't believe this thing hasn't died. Um, I went on like a three month binge and, you know, uh, two years later, here we are. Yeah. Yeah. So Intiande Bitcoin, is that, a, is that a company or is that just the name of your study? Can you explain more about what it is? Yeah, Intiande Bitcoin is a consultancy. Um, we sort of focus on two things. One, we help companies, Bitcoin companies, Bitcoin-focused companies, uh, develop and distribute products in Latin America and eventually other emerging markets. The second thing we do is we try and create open source resources, educational resources, and research so that the whole community can use it to build you know, better products to include more people in the Bitcoin revolution. Yeah, um, I, I was struck when I read your study, um, just generally how uh, easy it was to digest, which I think is uh, not always the most common thing uh, with the Bitcoin study. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that's the real like value that you're that that it's bringing is that you know there's actually there there's very few uh, surveys that I see about Bitcoin adoption, let alone Bitcoin adoption. Um, in uh, emerging markets. Yeah. Yeah. And th that was our goal is, you know, I feel like uh, in general, anything that seems complex, including, for example, the financial system day probably shouldn't be. So, you know, our goal is how can we make uh, our findings as, as easy to adjust as possible? We want everyone to be able to read it. So that was our goal. Happy to hear. Uh, it worked. <laughs> yeah, dude. Uh, and and, and I, I'm just curious what your take is on sort of the current standard of the financial system. I mean, people who come to Bitcoin can come for a variety of reasons from just wanting to diversify their investment portfolio to wanting to start a new um, monetary order. So, <laughs> so like, where do you fall on that spectrum? Oh man, it depends on the day. No, I'm kidding. I think um, in general, I feel like you know, I, I guess this is something I've had since childhood. I feel like it's wrong to try and make things opaque for people. I feel like in general, you know, the very few things in the world uh, are truly complex. And, you know, well, obviously there's a lot of things that are complex, but I feel like a lot of things are made complex needlessly. You know, people try and sort of pull the wool over other people's eyes. And I think, you know, for me, this was, I guess, kind of, um, you know, uh, a question of social inclusion. You know, I grew up in the U.S. and had access to all kinds of opportunities, a stable currency, all kinds of uh, financial, you know, a working financial system. Um, moving down to Mexico taught me how lucky I was. 
you know, the U.S. is not perfect by any means. And, you know, I, I certainly do share some of the Bitcoin community's concerns around inflation, around having a monetary system that's controlled arbitrarily. But I think it really sh- sh- uh, was, you know, it put a light for me on how lucky I was living in another country where, you know, my friends, just by virtue of being on the wrong side of an imaginary line, did not have access to these same tools. And so for me, I think if you want a, you know, a functioning global system and you want the most creative output, you got to give people access. And I think, you know, in the 90s, as a kid, I was you know, eight or nine when I first started playing with the internet. And I thought, man, how cool. Anyone anywhere in the world can have access to the Library of Alexandria at their fingertips. Um, you know, who knows what people are going to make with that? And I feel the same way with Bitcoin. You know, there's four or five billion people that lack access to basic financial resources, basic banking, um, basic stable currencies. Who knows what they're going to, you know, all of us are going to come up with over the next 10, 20, 30 years. So for me, it's an issue of inclusion. It's an issue of creativity. It's an issue of justice. And, uh, and just in general, it really frustrates me when people, you know, that already have a lot of power, already have a lot of wealth, you know, try and sort of pull the wool over everyone else's eyes. And I feel like Bitcoin is, you know, the, the most interesting political project I've ever seen um, to sort of combat that. Yeah, yeah. Some people say that uh, Bitcoin is inherently is not um, a political uh, object. It's completely irrelevant. It doesn't care about, you know, your, your uh, ideological beliefs. Um, so you sound like you're saying something different. Well, I think Bitcoin is apolitical in the sense that, you know, it doesn't have a, a political ideology, so to speak, but I think it's very much a political project in the idea that, you know, politics at some level is the study of power. And, you know, one of the, the two ways power, you know, usually gets controlled is through force, you know, military, and obviously now through sort of uh, economics or, uh, or money, money creation. And I think the ability to create, distribute, um, and, you know, to, to create and distribute money is one of the most powerful tools in the world. Um, that's why governments and the banking system um, you know, have such a, a privileged position. And I think Bitcoin basically says, well, what if we, you know, take the ability to create money and we take the ability to uh, regulate who can and cannot send a transaction and make that neutral? Um, you know, even though it's apolitical, it opens up all kinds of possibilities for people today who are oppressed. And so from a perspective of power, I think that's a, a seismic shift. Right. Um, <laughs> so, sorry, if this goes too, no. too philosophical, I can bring it down to you know, no, more- no, totally. I, I mean, I, I went there. I, I mean, it, it's a, more than anything. It's it's a mechanism for money is a mechanism for control, right. and and this is sort of a way to theoretically, at least, we haven't really seen it in practice to give everybody the opportunity to be at least in control of their end stuff. Yeah, and and just you know, for some very simple examples, I mean, you know, someone today that can't you know save, um, you know, they don't have access to a bank account or they don't have access to a PayPal account. You know, who knows what you know, people in communities that don't have these tools already, who knows what kinds of interesting businesses or projects they're going to start when they can start, you know, taking jobs that uh, pay European salaries or taking jobs or creating companies that can create products and services that, you know, Americans or, you know, people in the U.S. never would have thought of just because they have a totally different backdrop and a totally different uh, set of context. I think, I think the way I like to think about this is that Bitcoin facilitates a flourishing of worldwide creativity. It helps people break free of artificial bondage and who knows what's going to come out of it. And, you know, I feel excited and privileged to be even a small part of that. Beyond even that, I think uh, one of the things that like terrifies me the most is the idea of this widening um, gap between people who have access to all these amazing technological products and people who don't and what kind of rift that would create. I mean, I'm not necessarily like a pro like technocrat, but I do think that, you know, 
creating such a division, you know, it, it, it can create a very a widening gap of, of, of what humanity is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, at, a, at an even more basic level, you know, you've got a lot of folks in this community who, you know, I guess come from the Austrian school or whatever. I, I don't necessarily agree with all of that thinking. Um, but I do think that there's something to be said for, you know, the massive wealth and inequality in the world um, that comes from, you know, the ability for those that have assets to artificially inflate the price of those assets versus those that don't. And I think what I love about Bitcoin is anyone can buy Bitcoin, you know, and no one can take it away from you. So maybe you only have $100 or, you know, uh, even $50 or something to start, but you can buy Bitcoin with that. And unlike, you know, buying real estate or even gold or, you know, potentially stocks, um, you don't, you don't have to, the, the, the barrier to access is dramatically lowered. And I think that's a big deal. Right. And that's what I thought was so interesting about your study. I mean, so important about it is that you're literally at the front lines of, of, of trying to teach people how to use this technology and see if it's actually, you know, viable from a user standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, you started off doing it in Mexico City. Right. Uh, and, and why did you pick Mexico City? So I picked Mexico City for, um, I guess, two reasons. One, I wanted to go somewhere in Latin America. Uh, and two, Mexico City was where I had sort of most of my connections and experience working. I've been living there for almost four years on and off. And it was just a, a natural place to get started. There's also you know, 30 million people. So there's a, a pretty wide um, you know, variety of, uh, of social classes, a wide variety of users. Um, it seemed like a good place to start. Speaking of, of like the start, did you uh, seek funding first or did you try this on your own? And because I know you did, you did this study in, in two, uh, two waves. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, like sort of casually, I've been playing with this and trying to just get my friends to adopt in, uh, in Mexico for a while, obviously back in the States as well. Um, and I guess the end of last year, I've been kind of trying to decide, okay, uh, how can we make this a bit more sustainable? Um, so we were very fortunate. Um, we approached a few folks. The first study we did, uh, was with around 40 people. That was in November, December 2018. And then we got we partnered with Give Crypto, which is a nonprofit um, here in uh, in the United States, out of San Francisco. Um, they funded the the first project. Then you know that was only 40 people. We had some interesting results, and I said, let's go get more data. Let's do a much more in depth study. And so we uh, we approached a few more folks. We found an awesome partner in Bitso. Bitso is like the um, Coinbase or the leading cryptocurrency exchange of Mexico uh, and eventually of Latin America. And uh, we basically approached them and said, hey, we'd like to go deeper. We think we could come up with some interesting product and strategy ideas for you guys. Um, they were really excited and were a great partner to work with. Uh, could we dig into the methodology a little bit? Could you explain um, uh, the criteria, the rule set, all that? Yeah, totally. So the first study um, was pretty simple. We had, I think, uh, 38 people in total, um, 29 of whom were... Uh, from Mexico and living in Mexico, and the nine of them were uh, foreigners or immigrants living in Mexico. And we basically took those two groups, split them in half. Um, the group with the locals, we basically gave them a two-hour workshop. And in that workshop, we explained to them what Bitcoin was, um, why it and stable coins, we also use stable coins in the study, and I can explain why as well, um, but why they were both potentially good stores of value relative to the peso. Um, then we help people buy their first Bitcoin, we taught them the difference between uh, using a custodial wallet and a non-custodial wallet, so keeping their you know, keys with an exchange or keeping them themselves, and then let them decide how they wanted to store their Bitcoin. The second group, we then uh, focused on remittances or international payments. These were all people living in Mexico City who maybe they were from a different Mexican town or from a different country, 
and we help them uh, use Bitcoin to send a payment back to their families um, and get that money into their, uh, their family's bank accounts. Could you give us some of the user demographics? Absolutely. So um, the first study, I, we don't have quite as much data on that. The second study, I can go in much more detail. Um, the second study, you know, we had some interesting findings from the first study, but it was only like I said, you know, 30, 40 people. We came back and said, let's get a 10x larger sample size. So this time we had around 300 people. Um, and then to give you just some quick demographics, two thirds male, one third female, 65% were millennials so under the age of 30. 25% were uh, between the ages of 30 and 45, and then 10% were baby boomers, so over the age of 45. 80% had a university or higher level of education, and the other 20% high school or less. Um, and I think that is indicative of the fact that our group was a more middle-class Mexican group. Um, we ended up choosing that group for a couple of reasons, but uh, yeah, that, that was kind of who we focused on. They, in general, had more money to get started, to buy some Bitcoin with, more space on their phone, those kinds of things. Um, and then 80% of those people were uh, native Mexicans. The other 20% were either foreigners from another Latin American country or from Europe. Overall, what, what was the sentiment that you felt towards Bitcoin um, after the workshops and after working with these people? In general, the 100 people that came to the workshops, we did much more in-depth interviews. And I would say the general sentiment was... Um, People were interested. Um, I would say, you know, I think we had about 40% that had no sentiment whatsoever. Like, I've heard of Bitcoin, don't really know too much about it. Um, about a third of them were super skeptical. And they were skeptical because they've been introduced to Bitcoin via scams. So, I mean, you know, BitConnect was obviously really famous here in the US, but there's a ton of those kinds of scams in Latin America, um, which is pretty frustrating because most people hear Bitcoin, they say, oh, you know, I'm going to lose all my money with that. So I think in general, people either didn't have much of an opinion or had a mildly negative opinion um, when we started. Part of the conversation around regulation of cryptocurrency in general is the fact that you can't really, I mean, there's a sense that you can't really advance uh, what's good about the sector without uh, somehow creating a filter to cut out the scams. It looked like from the study I read, you had two pervading hypotheses uh, going into the study. Mm -hmm. um, what were those? Yeah, so our two main hypotheses, one was that Bitcoin and stable coins would be an interesting uh, store of value. So for anyone that was afraid that the peso may devalue versus the dollar, that Bitcoin and stable coins could provide them an alternative mechanism for storing their wealth. The right. second uh, hypothesis was that people that were sending remittances or international payments would be uh, open and excited to use Bitcoin to save 10 to 20% uh, in fees. What did you find out after the study for, uh, based on what you initially thought? What changed? Yeah, so um, two things. One, we found on the first hypothesis, you know, I'm more bullish than ever on Bitcoin and potentially short-term stable coins as a store of value. You know, what we found there was really interesting. So over 70% of the people that we surveyed were fearful of the peso devaluing versus the dollar in the next one to three years. So that was across the board. People were generally in agreement that uh, they didn't think peso, the peso was a good store of value. Now, though, of those same people, only 11% had access to a dollar-denominated savings account. And that and, you know, was the highest percentage. Um, that was the most common other financial instrument they had access to. So almost no one had access to stocks. Almost no one had access to you know, other more exotic products. Um, so most people simply had a peso savings account or nothing else. They were storing dollars under their mattress. So there's a bit, and, and by the way, that's for the middle class, right? The lower classes may not even have 
uh, bank account. I think 60% of Mexico um, is, you know, relatively un or extremely underbanked. Um, so that was really interesting to us because people, they want a way out of the peso. They, they don't think it's a good store of value. They've seen the peso devalue, you know, two or three times in their lifetime. Um, but they don't have any options for storing their wealth elsewhere other than, you know, physical dollars under the mattress. So I believe there's a huge opportunity there for Bitcoin and stable coins. Yeah. Why um, don't they have access to other financial, uh, assets or instruments? Yeah, this is a really good question and something, you know, I'm certainly not an expert in, um, but, you know, first of all, there's a lot of regulatory issues. So, you know, for companies like PayPal or other companies that want to ac offer access to, you know, stocks and ETFs, um, that's been, I think, regulatorily very difficult to do so. The other thing is, it just feels like the financial services industry has been, you know, um, pretty complacent uh, for the last couple of decades. Mm -hmm. You know, most of their uh, most of their users, you know, they're targeting the very wealthy class that have the majority of the money. You know, obviously there, there would be a lot of uh, opportunity in reaching sort of the long tail of people, but that would also take a lot of work to reach them. Um, you know, for example, building physical bank branches, that's not going to happen in smaller towns, that sort of thing. I, I think it's a, a mixture of regulatory issues and then also just general complacency from the um, uh, legacy financial system. Yeah, I mean... I, I think some of the discussion around uh, Facebook's Libra is like there a lot of people are, are thinking and betting that it's Facebook looking at a way to get into Africa. And mm -hmm. like I, I've had conversations with people and, and in that scenario, it's the same problem. Can you imagine what that process is to actually get people there to teach, you know, small villages of people how to use uh, a Bitcoin, like how to use a Bitcoin wallet? Like it would be how to use a phone in some use, cases. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, and you know, what's interesting is that I do think, you know, we could talk about Libra. That's a whole separate conversation. But, <laughs> yeah, we should right. probably <laughs> That's its own rabbit hole. But, but I do think that, you know, um, Mexico is an interesting country because most people do have smartphones. Um, you know, most people are, you know, relatively internet literate. Um, so I do think, you know, if you had an easy to use product on their phone and maybe that will be Libra or something like it. Um, I do think people, you know, can figure this out pretty quickly. It just hasn't been, I guess, a priority for companies yet. Um, and I think, uh, you know, one thing that Bitcoin has done, and I, I believe Bitcoin is specifically valuable for a lot of other reasons, you know, it's, it's finite supply, it's censorship resistance, it's security model, et cetera. But I do think one sort of undervalued thing that Bitcoin is doing in the world is it's forcing competition. You know, it's saying, okay, legacy financial system and big tech companies, um, you know, you guys have to compete now with an open decentralized borderless currency. And if you can create products and services that are better, great, people will use them. And if you can't, you know, we're here. <laughs> so I think at the very least, it's putting a lot of pressure to innovate. And I would argue Libra as a result of that. Yeah. Uh, but back to the demographics of, of, of your study. So I saw sort of an in interesting thing where a lot of times when people talk about Bitcoin and they try and justify why it will be massively adopted in the future, that they look to... They point to millennials and the younger generations and they say something like, you know, they're tech savvy and they'll get this, you know, they play video games on their phone. Like it, it'll be intuitive for them. Right. Whereas like the older generations will not get this. And your studies seem to indicate something different. Well, yeah. So, you know, I mentioned we had a couple of big findings. Um, so one of those big findings that I'm really excited about is I think the key to Bitcoin adoption in Latin America, or at least in Mexico, is going to be making it a family affair. Right? I think that we saw two different things from the millennials and the baby boomers. So the baby boomers, they were harder to get to a workshop for sure. But if we get them to a workshop, the baby boomers understood the use case for Bitcoin immediately. 
right? We didn't have to explain why Bitcoin. When we could go up there and say, look, we have a currency that is modeled uh, after gold. It has a finite supply. It can't be inflated. It can't be confiscated. Everyone got it like that, right? They've lived in Mexico. There was a massive devaluation in the 80s. There was the tequila crisis in the 90s. And like I mentioned, even since I've been there, there's been a steady devaluation in the last five years. So these adults understood the use case for Bitcoin without any explanation. Now, they didn't trust having any kind of digital currency. If it's something they can't hold in their hands, they can't really grasp their mind around the idea that, okay, is this really scarce, right? Um, the kids had kind of the opposite perception. You know, the kids were open to the idea of digital currencies. They were, I think, uh, certainly quicker on the uptake with the apps and more interested in doing research around how Bitcoin works, but they haven't necessarily lived as an adult with assets through a massive financial crisis. So right. you know, they were generally skeptical of the peso as well, but not like their parents. So my sort of thinking and what we're developing with some of our clients right now is, okay, cool. How do you, you know, uh, get the kids excited first and have them, have them onboard their parents uh, who have the savings, who have the, you know, the assets to convert into stable coins and Bitcoin. I think that's going to be a really big opportunity. Yeah. Um, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, speaking about uh, past financial crises crises in Mexico. Could you explain them a little bit more, like specifically the tequila crisis that you mentioned? Yeah. So I, I you know, I, I'm, this probably, uh, I'm probably not the right person. To, I'm, I'm not a super expert in this, yeah. but at a very high level, I mean, what you have with any of these kinds of currency crises is, you know, uh, whenever a country or companies have, you know, debt denominated, for example, in dollars, and they take out the loan at a very low interest rate, and then all of a sudden the interest rate starts rising. They have to pay the debt back in dollars. They don't have the dollars to pay it back, which means they have to print more of their local currency pesos to pay the currency back. That's you know kind of a general formula for um, crises we've seen all around the world. Um, so again, I can't I can't speak exactly the specifics on each of those, but uh, what ended up happening in both cases is you know the government had you know a peg uh, between the peso and the dollar. Um, they had to break the peg because they didn't have enough. Um, you know, pesos to, to pay back their dollar denominated um, debts. And then all of a sudden, they have to print more pesos. And, um, you know, this creates a devaluation. So again, certainly not claiming to be an economist there and it uh, may have gotten some things wrong, but at a very high level, that's generally how it works. We don't even have Bitcoin economists yet. So as long as you stick to Bitcoin, <laughs> you can't be proven wrong. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, again, I mean, I, I think that the major idea is that when, um, you know, when you're holding a currency that can be manipulated by a small group of people, whenever, for whatever reason, they decide to print more of that currency, your relative purchasing power as a percentage of the currency you hold is going to go down. Um, yeah. That's the basic idea we've seen over and over and over again. In Bitcoin, you can't do that. And I think that's attractive for a lot of people. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the upside down. Um, but also, when we're thinking about Bitcoin, um, a lot of times I hear when I'm talking to people and trying to explain it to you know, people who don't use it. Um, I, I hear the, you know, it's not controlled by anyone. That's weird. Um, did you, get, did you get anything of that? Like, did you get any sort of like, like concern that it was not being controlled or monitored by some entity? Was that like yeah. expressed at all? Well, maybe to take a step back. One thing that I think is important is, you know, we would give sort of an overview on Bitcoin, uh, but a lot of cases we found that that wasn't necessarily the most important thing. There's a certain group of people that want to understand all of the governance and security models. There's a lot more people that basically just said, look, I have a problem. And that problem is I want to have money that can't be confiscated or inflated, or I want to send you know, cheaper payments uh, overseas. And you know, uh, I want the basics of why this is going to work. And then I want to test it and see if it works, right? 
So I think right. a lot of people weren't necessarily going into those deeper philosophical or technical um, sort of uh, uh, understandings of how Bitcoin works. Now, for those that wanted to go deeper, and I've seen this even back in the States, explaining this to family and friends, the idea of a decentralized network is kind of hard to grasp. So I always start by saying, hey, do you guys know, you know what BitTorrent is, for example? Do you know why BitTorrent hasn't been killed after all of these decades? And people start thinking, oh, wait a second. It's because there's not one server hosting BitTorrent. There's you know, hundreds of thousands or you know, whatever it is, thousands of computers now that are running this software. Um, and that's what Bitcoin is. And Bitcoin you know, is a decentralized peer-to-peer network that also has properties around uh, emission of Bitcoin, the creation of Bitcoin already you know, written in. And at first people look at me like, man, I don't really trust computers. And I say something along the lines of, yeah, I mean, who do you trust more? You know, the software that you can openly audit yourself, run on hundreds uh, or, you know, tens of thousands of computers right now, or a small cadre of people controlled by, you know, uh, bankers you may not know or politicians you may disagree with. And then folks start thinking, wait a second, you know, this is kind of interesting. And yeah, I think in general, like understanding a little bit about peer-to-peer networks has, has helped people. And if you don't have that initial you know, a mental model or building block, it's a bit harder. Sure. Um, And and then on the other side of it, uh, you also invested into uh, sentiment about Bitcoin as an international payment or remittance tool. Can you explain uh, what you learned from the study in that scenario? Yeah. So we, you know, our other, you know, again, hypothesis was we can save people 10 to 20% on on international payments if they use Bitcoin. Great. Um, This one was a big challenge. First of all, it was really difficult to get people to come to the workshops and spend two hours of their life learning about Bitcoin just to save 10 or 20%. Um, What we ended up finding was unless you have a real need, right? unless you're sending money to a place where you don't have any other options, and in the case of Venezuela, that actually might be the case or potentially other sanctioned states, but unless you have that specific use case, 10 to 20% savings was not enough of an incentive for people. And it makes sense because it's really hard. Like in order to send Bitcoin, you know, we had to help people open a cryptocurrency exchange account in Mexico. In our case, we use Bitso. Then they had to take that money. They had to send it to another exchange in another country. So open up another exchange account. Or in the case of Venezuela, open up a local Bitcoins account, which is even harder to use. Then once they have it there, they have to figure out how to withdraw the Bitcoin from that uh, second exchange into their, you know, usually their parents, or their family's bank accounts because um, their parents were not going to figure this out. So the people that did take the time and sit with this and do it, um, it usually took at least one to two sessions plus a follow-up to get them to, uh, to fully figure this out and feel comfortable sending Bitcoin on their own. Now they're hooked and they're going to use Bitcoin forever. But that was you know, hours and hours of time. Most people aren't going to make that kind of upfront investment. So our takeaway is that Bitcoin is probably not ready for prime time in terms of international payments yet. Mm-hmm. Frankly, something like Libra, or whatever is, is probably better for that in the short term. But Bitcoin makes a lot of sense uh, for bigger companies or trading groups who are already doing remittances, who already have customers' trust, who just want to use the Bitcoin rails in the background. And we right. believe we can prove this. This is just a hunch that a lot of the, the volume you see on local Bitcoins in countries like Venezuela, Colombia, uh, Peru, Mexico, whatever, it's probably from, from companies or groups like that. And can you explain uh, what that like kind of system would look like if companies were doing that? Yeah, I mean, at a very high level, you know, um, you could just say, "Hey, um, I'm your your trader that you've been trading with, or your remittance company that you've been using for the last two years. You know me, you trust me, and you give me money. I'm going to get that money into your family's bank account in another country, you know, within a day or whatever time period, and that's all you care about." 
you want to yeah. make sure that money gets there for the agreed, agreed upon amount at the agreed upon time. You don't care how I do it. Now, if I'm smart and I recognize, okay, I could use, you know, let's say in the case of Venezuela, I know some folks that are actually doing this, I'm going to use local Bitcoins myself, right? So I'm going to take the money you give me, I'll use local Bitcoins and get the Bolivares and the account of someone that's living over in Venezuela. And you never know Bitcoin was used. All you know is your money reached your, you know, your parents' account. Um, I think that's, that's what people are doing. Yeah. Uh, in that scenario, I guess, would transaction fees still be an issue? Like, I, I mean, I know this is something more you're suspecting. So like, feel free to say that you just have not looked into it or. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, certainly again, I, yeah, I, I haven't looked super deep in that, but you know, transaction fees when it's less than $2, you know, it's probably worthwhile to use Bitcoin because of its um, liquidity. Uh, above that, you know, if you're doing much larger transactions and you could, for example, transfer the money into one, you know, Venezuelans account that can maybe then, um, you know, retransfer that money to lots of their accounts for you. There's, there's probably clever ways to do this. I think the key that Bitcoin has over any other currency there, and, you know, again, some people are, they're using Ethereum or they're using, you know, soon Libra to this great. That's what works for them. Um, but I think the key with Bitcoin is it's security and it's liquidity. And liquidity is absolutely uh, key. The ability to be able to cash out your Bitcoin for a local currency anywhere in the world, that's critical for people doing this. Payments aside, what did you see as the biggest as the biggest challenges facing Bitcoin adoption in Latin America? I think the biggest challenge right now is it's too hard for people to use, and people either have no opinion or a negative opinion of it. Um, so I think you're. You, I think we need two things. I think we need much easier tools, right? We need we need for people to see use cases and see easy solutions for those use cases, and then eventually over the long haul, I do think we need to see. Uh, sort of more scalability around Bitcoin. Obviously, fees can't be like they were in 2017. That's just that's not that's not viable, at least for you know for the users we we're talking about. But I think we're going to get there. Um, I think it's going to take some time. I think it's why it's good we're doing research now. This is not going to get done overnight. This is not going to get done by one group. Uh, I think this is going to be you know um, you know hundreds of companies and, and organizations that are figuring this stuff out. I think though, at um, the the most important thing is that we help people solve problems, right? Like a lot of us that listen to this podcast, myself included, are kind of, you know, we're cryptocurrency geeks. This is fun for us. Um, it's not fun for most people. And we have to remember that. So you have to solve problems. And that, that's what business is about is finding a problem, offering a solution. It's not about technology. The technology is a tool. So I think, you know, and we're to that end, we're, we're working with a few clients on this right now. I think instead of saying, hey, use Bitcoin, you don't say, hey, use Bitcoin. You say, hey, you have pesos, and you're afraid they're going to devalue, I have a solution to help you hedge against that currency risk. And that solution maybe is a combination of storing in stable coins, dollar-backed stable coins, and a little bit of Bitcoin. Or, hey, you have, you know, um, you need to send money to a place to your family that for whatever reason, it's difficult to get money in or it's highly expensive. I have a solution to help you do it easily. I think we need solutions-oriented thinking, um, not just technology. So going into that too, we, we I hadn't asked about the stable coins yet. Uh, what did you find about stable coins from the study? This you know is not super surprising, but we saw it in both studies very clearly. People want dollars, right? So we think in the U.S. we're very fortunate to have access to the uh, the global reserve currency, right? Most people don't have that access, um, and if they do, they're having to buy them, you know, on gray markets on the street. So. You know, almost every single person we talked to, if we said, hey, would you rather keep your money in dollars or pesos? Obviously, they want dollars. That's, I think that's probably true around the entire world. But most of them can't get access to dollars, at least digitally. So what we saw is that when we told people, hey, you know, through cryptocurrency, you can get you know, access to a dollar-backed stablecoin, they were extremely excited about that. 
they were also excited about Bitcoin for its gold-like scarcity properties. And so one thing we've been playing with is the ability you know, to help people gauge their own risk profile and based on that, split their savings between stable coins and Bitcoin. Most people wanted a mix of both, but I would say stable coins were probably the, the thing that excited people the most. Okay, that, that makes sense as far as like trying to store value versus investment uh, asset. That's right. Yeah. You know, if, if you want a little bit of speculation and to be clear, right, like humans are, are humans, people always want to speculate. So there's, there was some of that in there driving the Bitcoin piece, but in general, people trust dollars. Um, now, do they trust the new cryptocurrencies that are quote unquote, you know, dollar backed? Like, you know, uh, Tether's obviously had all of its issues. Who knows if these new companies that are coming out, you know, we, we did our best. And in, in the case of Mexico, we only would help people acquire two things, Bitcoin and TrueUSD, and that's it. Um, and the reason is liquidity. You know, Bitso basically has uh, off ramps for for true USD. So that's what we help people get. So, so where are you now after the report? You uh, you you brought up a little bit about this, but I, I was just curious. Yeah. So right now, um, right now I'm actually on a on a family road trip, but um, I'm actually going to uh, you know to share findings um, and a couple other with a couple of other groups over the next two weeks in San Francisco and then Hong Kong. Um, and then we're going to pick which sort of project to do next. We have a couple of different uh, potential projects in the works, either in Mexico, you know, with, with some of our, uh, our current clients. Um, we also have a couple of other opportunities we're exploring in other countries. I would, you know, obviously I think going deeper on Mexico, we see a lot of opportunity there. I also think though, Bitcoin's going to get even more adoption in places like Argentina or Turkey, where there's a lot of inflation. Um, so, you know, we're, we're at this, at this moment trying to pick out what's the most effective project we can undertake. Well, where should there be work that there's not work right now? Can you name a few other places in the world that you're looking at specifically? Yeah, I'd say Argentina is probably top of the list. Um, yeah. in that it's in Latin America, Spanish speaking, um, you know, history of currency manipulation, um, high, high, super high inflation right now, but not Venezuela level. Um, obviously, Venezuela is the sort of poster child for this right now with uh, hyperinflation. Unfortunately, I think that while that work is extremely important, um, there's a lot of other stuff that needs to happen there just around basic human security, food access, water access. So sure. I think in my mind, it's more interesting to get Bitcoin distributed in a place before it hits that level of, um, you know, sort of crisis. Um, Turkey is interesting. Iran is interesting. The Philippines are interesting. Brazil is interesting. Anywhere where you see lack of access to financial services, history of inflation or sort of currency controls, currency controls particularly. Um, and people, I think this is under undervalued, but you know, People that are entrepreneurial, creative, willing to try and adopt new things. Um, I think Argentina has a long history of that uh, because of all their currency crises. Currency crises, so that's a really attractive one for me. Max, I'm curious if you think there's a use case for Bitcoin adoption with uh, the whole immigration crisis in the U.S. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Um, so, to give people a bit of context, the U.S.-Mexican remittance corridors. You know, I think it's the, the largest or second largest in the world. It's around $30 billion a year. It's massive. And before I went down to Mexico, I was in San Francisco and I was living in the mission at the time. And so I went to just a bunch of, you know, Western unions and those kinds of, um, you know, money sending or money remitting uh, stores and basically just asked people online. I was like, hey, have you heard of Bitcoin? Would you be willing to, to send money to someone overseas or in Mexico uh, if I could help you save, you know, a little bit of money doing that? And what I found is that that particular corridor is pretty well oiled, right? Like people that are using Western Union, I found we're paying five to $10 on average. And, you know, let's assume their average transaction is the same as in our study, which is about $100, $120. It's not terrible, right? It's not good. And we could certainly do a lot better. 
But when people, like the number one thing we found people wanted when sending money uh, to another country is trust, right? They're going to pay more if they know it's going to get there. They're not going to like try and skimp, you know, save a couple bucks if there's the question of, will this reach my family? Right. Um, So long-term, yeah, I do think there's a huge opportunity. I think there's some, um, some creative companies will figure out cool solutions. Short-term, I don't think it's top of the priority list. And like outside of your, your, your study and workshops on the ground in Mexico uh, mm-hmm. around Bitcoin, you, you also rap about Bitcoin? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, so my, yeah, my side passion for a long time is rap. I have a, actually a hip-hop group in Mexico um, called AI. Uh, I go by the name Cyper Perro. And uh, yeah, I published last year a song called We Take Bitcoin that, to my knowledge, is the only rap song that focuses on Bitcoin's core principles uh, rather than just, you know, getting rich or getting Lambos. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty proud of trying to spread the, uh, spread the message through music. Well, awesome, man. Um, cool. I think that's everything we have, right, Dave? That's it, Max. Yeah. Thanks cool. for, thanks for taking the time to talk. Cool. All right. Take care guys. I see the world fall apart. All brain, no heart. Assumptions like Descartes trapped in their own compartments. We commence. Special thanks to Max, aka Cypher Perro. You can find more information about Intiende Bitcoin and his music in the show's notes. The Bitcoin Magazine podcast is a BTC media produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. Stories in this episode come from articles written by Bitcoin Magazine rock stars Peter Chihuahua and Colin Harper. Theme music provided by Billy Sly from the Crypto Cantina. Outro music courtesy of Cypher Perro. Visit BitcoinMagazine.com for more in-depth news analysis and resources about the most successful peer-to-peer currency. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at Bitcoin Magazine. Find and subscribe to the show on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcast. And if you're in a particularly generous mood, drop us a review. Thanks for tuning in, guys. We'll see you next time. Take Bitcoin. Yeah, we take Bitcoin. We take Bitcoin. We take Bitcoin.